0: I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million-dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I've endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. Today, I am joined by Yishay Waxman, an entrepreneur, investor, and startup advisor. He has been in the mobile and digital space for over 25 years, traveled to more than 85 countries, and sold platforms and solutions to more than 350 operators worldwide. Now, most recently, he was the Founder of JumpTap, which was a wildly recognized advertising network in mobile advertising. This was headquartered in Boston, and he scaled it to 100 million in revenue with more than 300 employees. JumpTap was acquired for 240 million. After taking a year off, Yishay jumped back in with the entrepreneurial bug and co-founded Platters. Clatters is headquartered in Toronto and is now the leading online B2B food and culture platforms in North America, with offices in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and over 15 additional North American markets, employing 160 employees and growing. Such a great chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Today, I am joined by Yishai Waxman. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. So now, give us some background on who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. I was born in Israel. I arrived in Canada in 1978, grew up in a small town beside Hamilton called Dundas, Ontario. And I went to undergrad at McMaster and then went overseas for my MBA and really I've been in tech for you know more than 25 years. Always been on the sales side and, and the BD side and today living in Toronto with a wife and two kids.
0: Very nice. So how old were you when you came to Canada?
1: I was actually six years old. First time I had seen snow in the middle of the winter and the parents just wanted a different life for for me and my brothers away from Israel. And I think part of the success that I've had over life and, and even my siblings is what this country in Canada Allowed us as, as immigrants to really get so much opportunity, the, and and we were fortunate that uh, we were raised by parents that taught us hard work, perseverance kind of pays off, and the rest takes care of itself. And so I'm very fortunate to what we have and what our parents gave us, and a big part of that is just growing up in this incredible country.
0: Mm. What did your parents do? Were they entrepreneurs?
1: They were not. When we came here, literally, it was immigrants with uh, two hundred dollars in their pocket. And wow do every odd end job. We ended up in Hamilton because of the scrap metal and my dad was a truck driver and my mom sold Avon door to door. Wow. Yeah, and so just watching our parents literally have three jobs and just do everything, to have food on the table for us and make sure we have proper education and help support us throughout university. I think it's a big testament to, you know, who we are today and all the sacrifices that they had to make.
0: So in 2005, when you co-founded JumpTap, walk me through what led you to that. Like, how did you get started?
1: Actually, before JumpTap, actually, I think the journey with tech really started. I ended up going to Israel to do my MBA. Hmm. It was going to be one of those six weeks trip and then come back and do law school at Osgood. I thought I was going to be the journey. McGuire, I loved sports <laughs> playing. I thought I was going to be the sports agent, and then I saw an ad to go teach English for six weeks, and I stayed ten years. I never made it back to <laughs> Osgood. Oh my gosh! I saw the beach. I saw the weather. I, you know, I was there as a kid, but I didn't remember much. And said, "Why don't I just stay here?" But at that time, if you know anything about Israel, the military, it's mandatory for males three years, for females two years. And wow. yeah, I had to figure out a way, like, how do I avoid this military service. Being 21, there they started 18. And the one way to do it was to go study. And so I ended up doing the MBA and and my GMATs in Israel. And really that's where I got into tech in my early 20s. And there was so much booming in Israel in terms of like the 90s of tech. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated with, you know, so much technology coming out of there and how if, you know, what I could help with. And, I wasn't a coder. I didn't have the tech background, but I knew that being in sales and everything I've done on you know business development and revenues, I, I figured I could add value to companies. And dumb luck, a lot of companies were bidding after me because of my English at that time. <laughs> mm. because it was my mother tongue. I happened to take a gamble on a company called Converse, not the shoe Converse, but Com with an M. And I worked for a gentleman who patented the voicemail. Oh, no way. <laughs> His name was uh, Kobe Alexander, and he, he patented the voicemail. He knew there was going a better way to leave messages for people as opposed to like a tape recorder and, and pressing two fingers and leaving a message. And that company became a Fortune 500. When I was there, there were probably about you know 100 people. And when I left after nine years, they were over 6,000 people. Wow. <laughs> and so it gave me that entree into tech. I traveled to over 90 countries and I would begin my week like Iceland, Greenland, Telecom, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, back to Tel Aviv, change the bag, hit you know Romania, Czech Republic, Malta, then went back to Asia and, and I sold voicemail. And from there <laughs> we developed SMS. Mobile phones weren't even out yet. It was predominantly wireline, but mobile phones were just starting to come out. And now we were developing SMS, all the technology for text messaging. And through that journey, the last gig, was ringtones. So by this point, I was already married in Israel. They relocated me back to Canada, ironically, in 2003. And I was spearheading a, a unit in this big organization around ringtones and ringback tones. Do you remember ringback tones?
0: What were those?
1: So when you call somebody, instead of hearing the dial tone, you're going to hear a piece of music.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah.
1: And so we were selling that product. My relationship obviously was already with all the Vodafones and Orange and AT&T and Verizons and Bell and Rogers. My first ringtone deal was actually with Maverick Records, with Madonna's label for the song Material Girl.
0: Oh, gosh. That's hilarious. Love Madonna.
1: And yes, yes. And so that was nine years of that. And then Jump Tap came about in 2005 because I got introduced to one of the venture capitalists in Boston that was looking to spearhead a mobile search, mobile advertising play. And I decided been in the company for nine years. I want to go try something else. I had an opportunity to sit at this VC, almost like incubate this idea and after a few months, they gave us $5 million, and we set out to start JumpTap. And it was a mobile search, mobile ad play that started in 2005. And that journey also became nine years.
0: Wow, what did JumpTap do exactly? JumpTap
1: in 2005 and 2006, pre-iPhone, there was this whole notion about these mobile operators whether it was the Verizons, the AT&Ts, the Vodafones, they were worried that the Googles, the Yahoos, the AOLs, they would all make all the money. You're going to go to the cell phone, type in something, and these search portals are going to make all the money, and the carrier is really just going to be what, in those terms back then, were called a dump pipe, and they'd be left out of the mm. revenue equation. And so the idea was, can we do a white-label search? And so that's how JumpTap started. You would go to Verizon, you'd see a search box. It was white-labeled by jump tab, but really it was powered. you know, the brand was Verizon Search, right? And the search experience too was much different in 2005 because if you typed in Madonna back then, you wanted to get her ringtones, her screensaver, not necessarily just the the World Wide Web and get all these links. And so it was much more content-based search. That's how the company started. But in 2007, like as you know, and most companies that you hear about the pivot, we did a strong pivot in 2007. We knew search leads into advertising. That's just the way it's played out. But in mobile, you know, really it was just Nokia and Blackberry. And pricing plans were still terrible. The data plans were bad, bandwidth, et cetera. And it just became a challenge to to make a lot of revenues from search, pay-per-click revenues and so forth. But then when iPhone came out in 07, our worlds changed overnight. Oh, my God, there's like now a computer in your hand. Nobody knew what an SDK was. Nobody knew what an app was. But we knew we had to pivot very fast from search towards advertising. And eventually, that's what JumpTap became. You know, a mobile ad network. We were competing with companies like Quattro, that was bought by Apple, AdMob, that was bought by Google, and we became a mobile ad network. So, literally putting interstitials and banners on a web property or an app, if it was CVC or TSN, and putting a banner there. And we scaled from there to brands and to the mobile downloads. And so, like everything in life, you need timing and serendipitous that I happened to be in the Nordic at the time. I think I was in Finland at a conference and I met a couple of young guys who had told me they were developing games for Nokia, but nobody was really downloading or playing it. And they said, they're down to a few thousand euros and could I help them get downloads? They're going to develop their game for iOS They literally showed me it on a piece of paper that you flick a bird and it's going to knock down buildings. And I said, Look, I'm not a gamer. I don't know anything about it, but I think we can try to help you get downloads. And Rovio and Angry Birds became my first client.
0: Wow. That's wild.
1: uh, From there, it became several hundreds of millions of downloads. And a few months later, I happened to be in the UK and I met. Similar story. Met a few guys who had showed me a game. I said, again, I'm not a gamer. I said, it looks like Tetris. And they said, yeah, we think it could be a big hit if you can help us get some downloads. And so I helped Candy Crush, king.com, get get millions of downloads.
0: So how do you help a company get downloads? How does an app get acquire downloads? Well,
1: essentially, think about you going to any web property, any, you know, if it's TSN or CBC or what have you, either on their app or their website on mobile, and there would be a banner for Candy Crush. If you (laughs) click it and download it, we, TSN and ourselves, we were splitting that dollar that Candy Crush would pay us. (laughs) Hmm was a straight up rev share to get them the downloads. And it scaled from there. So many people were trying to get their games or whatever app they wanted downloaded. That's how we scaled to be a mobile ad network with over hundred million in revenues and eventually selling the company in 2003 to Millennial Media.
0: So how come you decided to exit?
1: That time, you know, I think there's, it was a nine year journey. There was You know, some of the things have already played out in terms of like AdMob getting bought by Google and Mm -hmm. now there are big players entering the space, right? Facebook wasn't even really there yet or Amazon wasn't even there. Those are two of the biggest platforms today in mobile advertising. But so we, we were reading the map and we said like, look, it's probably better to just strategically partner with somebody that had larger scale, more footprint to really leverage our technology and scale out. And Millennial Media, that's what they did. They acquired us and then months later, Later, AOL acquired Millennial, jumped out, And then months later, Verizon bought AOL.
0: Wow. <laughs> what do you think attributed to a lot of the success of the company?
1: Timing has a big part of it, obviously. Mm. I mean, in 2007, I don't think any of us knew that this iPhone was coming out. We didn't know what apps were. We just happened to be the early adopters of it and just moved quickly. We, we obviously had a challenge about... Do we stay with our core business, which is mobile search? Or do we go full steam ahead into this mobile advertising where it could be very lucrative, but it was early. Nobody knew. And from there, just things really took off. And so I think obviously a big part of it was was timing, but also being quick to adopt and not sitting there thinking about our core product and taking a big gamble, you know, like Mm -hmm. let's move resources to this and see if it scales. So I think that was a big part of it, I think. Certainly the, I I say it all the time, when you're launching a company and so forth, you can have the best coders, you can have the best developers, you can have the best product and technology, but ultimately you need somebody to know how to sell it. And you need somebody to build that relationships. And you know, luckily my world was that for years, all I did was build relationships, you know, whether it was selling a $20 million deal on a golf course with the sprint CEO, Or whatever it was, that was my world. And so I would say that even what I did with Angry Birds or Candy Crush, those folks, those companies, Rovio and King.com was a lot of relationships that were built Mm -hmm. and ending those relationships. And so, you know, building trust and to say like, look, I can't tell you right now that, you know, we'll be able to drive hundreds of millions of downloads. Like, let's start with something small. Give me a test budget. Let me see what we can do. And we'll be truthful. And I think that trust, carried a long way for us to really scale the company. And so that was a big part of the success as well.
0: Yeah. I saw an interesting interview with you where you had said the key to making sales is selling yourself, not the product.
1: I'm a huge believer in that. I know that a lot of people will, you may not disagree with me. I just have some of my own personal experience, even as an angel investor as well. Mm-hmm. Most of the companies that are just three kids that uh, come out of the Waterloo uh, engineering program. For sure, they can have a lot of success with the product and the tech that they're building. And I'm not saying they wouldn't, but who's there selling? Who's really there as part owner to really take this forward? And I find that a lot of times people forget about that part. It's Mm -hmm. all about MVP. It's all about the demo. And I'm like, you got to go sell it first. I mean, we didn't get to platters yet, but even when we built platters, I'd already sold it before we built it. Mm. Before we knew we had a company, I I was already on the road for three months and I already knew that I already sold the product that wasn't even built. And then we moved the company.
0: So after you sold that company, the Jump Tap, you took a bit of a break, didn't you? I
1: took a year off. Oh, that was it? I took a year. Yeah, I took one full year, all of 2014. I felt just 20 years living on a plane and hotels. Yeah. Uh, you you did,
0: are. I think you earned it.
1: <laughs> it. It took quite a bit on the body. I will say that a lot of my success, you know, is obviously a, the partner as well. I couldn't have done any of this without the support of my wife, obviously. Oh, kids, yeah. that they, they have to sacrifice a lot, right? Oh, um, yeah, big time.
0: Don't you find it sometimes very difficult to manage both?
1: Very difficult. Very difficult. And I think I had a bit of a guilt trip. Mm-hmm. I think – Taking that year off in 2014 was a lot of me just giving back. I missed a lot of the diaper stage for the kids, and and so being in a situation now where they're just you know about to enter their teens, I wanted to be around. I felt like I missed so much of the, of their childhood. You know, being on the road, and so even in that year off, I think it was some point after six months, my wife had come to me and said enough, I don't need you driving to karate class or tennis (laughs) lessons. I got discovered. And I think it just came from a guilt, right, of me not being around. So it was very important for me for obviously to digest, take some time for myself, think about what I want to do next, but also just spend time with my kids and and my wife. Mm
0: -hmm. It's definitely a challenge for so many entrepreneurs to balance both because we become it becomes our life. but it, it, uh,
1: it's not easy. It's not easy to to manage obviously our personal lives and then you know running a business. And uh, it's, I
0: think it's it's extremely important to have a partner that understands and that is flexible with it. If you're going to have a successful business and a successful relationship,
1: couldn't agree <laughs> more. Right? I mean, we, we've seen so many in our space that had to part ways from their spouse or what have you because of all the stress involved. And, oh and,
0: yeah, I see it all the time.
1: You know, I have friends that are going through it right now and it, and it's, it's hard. And I, and I understand it. it's like, you know, what's going to give in? Am I going to give in on the business? Am I going to give in on the personal front? And managing both is really hard. And so I think on both sides of the equation, you just need a very strong partnership. Business is not just a success, again, of the product that you built and sold. It's so many other variables around it that will help you make your business successful. It's the quality of the relationships. It's something that you said that maybe you've heard me say before. I think it's, it's key that all the quality of your relationships and that you build along the way.
0: Oh, yeah, because they'll come back around, maybe not in the same capacity, but maybe in a different city or a different company or a different position.
1: Exactly. You're going to be
0: seeing that person again. And once you've got the relationship, it's funny how different connections show up.
1: For sure. I mean, so- I talk all about, about not burning bridges. I teach my staff that all the time. I say, when I lost a deal to AT&T 18 years ago, the natural instinct of me is to get all upset. I worked on it for eight months. How could they go with somebody else? Wow. The right approach was not to get mad, Because six months later, that same person went to Verizon and gave me the business of Verizon.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important lesson. Sometimes it's very hard too, because when you put so much blood, sweat, and tears into these projects, it's hard not to take it personally.
1: For sure. But it's a small world. Whether you're in the tech community in Toronto, New York, the Valley, Israel, it doesn't matter. We're, we're a small group of people that eventually you're going to be connected to somebody through LinkedIn Connect One, Two, or Three. The degree of separation is not that far away. And so don't burn bridges. Continue to just build relationships. And another key thing that I always tell people is network, 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 network. It's just, you can't Mm over-network.
0: How did Platters come to be? Because it's a corporate catering company.
1: I sold voicemail, then I sold Angry Birds, and then I said, let's go sell falafel. Makes makes complete sense,
0: doesn't it? (laughs) So how did this idea come to be? And what exactly, because I know it has AI involved as well.
1: Look, ultimately, in that year that I took off, I met a lot of different entrepreneurs and thinking what I want to do next and where do I want to live? And obviously, you know, there were so many things about Canada I loved. The previous company Jump Tap was out of Boston and there were so many things in Canada that really, it was much more than just Blackberry at this point when there was Shopify and a lot of companies that I heard. And I was just like, wow, so much innovations coming out of Toronto. I didn't know about shreds. I didn't know about, you know, the corporate tax structure here versus Massachusetts. And so through all that, I started networking and I met my co-founder, Aaron Henning. Aaron had just moved here from New York. He's been coding since the age of 14. One of the smartest guys I've ever met, you know, he had built a company as well here in Canada called Tradio. That was sold to Metroland Media. And then he went to New York for a couple of years working for uh, Jim Estill and his venture fund. And And in New York, he got exposed to so many different things. In the food scene, there was still no Uber Eats, but there was DoorDash and Postmates. And there was some stuff on the consumer side. And then when he moved back to Toronto, his wife uh, got accepted to her PhD. He and I got introduced to a mutual friend. We met at a Starbucks. It's one of those typical, you think you're going to meet somebody for a half hour. We stayed at the Starbucks for five, six hours.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was like, you know, maybe like a first date. Um, It was getting to know somebody. We didn't even talk about business for the first two, three hours. We were just talking about, you know, our childhood and our values and outlook on life. It was halfway through that conversation that he literally said to me, he goes, so what do you think about falafel and shawarma? And I said, talk to me. Are we opening up falafel stands? And he
0: said,
1: <laughs> <laughs> he said no. He said, I, you know, I've always been intrigued. Everyone's kind of focused on this food scene from a, a B2C, an app, download, you know, get food for yourself. But on the B2B side, there's such a massive opportunity. Food is what brings people together. He, the moment he started speaking, I, I think there was a part of that where I wasn't even with him. I was for like several minutes in my own little world thinking about jump tap. And the same tuna wraps and the same Caesar salad for nine years, whether it was a board meeting, whether it was our town hall sales meeting, we ordered from the same place for nine years. And I remember telling the office manager at the time, could we get some sushi? Could we get some Thai? And they were like, no. But when you think about it, e-commerce in 07, 08, when I was at JumpTap, wasn't very prevalent on a lot of things, let alone food. Mm-hmm. And so the whole notion of why would I call somebody and give them our credit card? Why would I call 10 different places? Why would I give it to what a bagel or, or meva me or what have you? They already know our credit card. Why would I have to like keep giving it out? And so technology today solves that. You don't have to give your credit card out to 10 different restaurants. You just put it in once and it saves it. Why would I call somebody else and tell them we need 30 vegetarian meals? This company in Boston that we use, they already know that. Well, technology today solves that. You just put your company profile and how many vegetarians or dairy-free. And so I was very intrigued. And so in that first Starbucks meeting, Aaron, Aaron really kind of started with that, the notion of food. And then it really went much more than that. And he said, you know, beyond food, you know, it's all around the culture. Staff, employees today are all about, employers want to keep everybody happy, engaged, and talent. We're all fighting over talent. And so like, how do we build this platform all around culture? And so we knew that food was our way into the company. It wasn't really the end goal. And Mm -hmm. so I literally from that Starbucks, I just said, you know, I'm so intrigued. Are you sure there's a big market? And he Mm -hmm. said, it's a massive market. And I can just tell you that everyone is going down the BDC side. No one's really going on the B2B. And I, I told him, just leave me alone for three months. Let me do my own research. And that's what I alluded to before. I just started walking up and down companies in Toronto, New York, Boston. And I would talk to different office managers, uh, CFOs, VPHR. And I would just say like, you know, how is it today ordering food? Hmm. And I would still tell you today, 90% of the competition is just calling Aroma directly. That's still the competition. Just Hmm. call a restaurant or a caterer directly. And so every pain point that the user would have I knew we could automate by calling Aaron up in Toronto and saying, hey, Aaron, it takes people like 45 minutes to build a menu for like 200 people. And he said, well, I think I could build an AI layer and really automate that to build your menu in less than three seconds. You know, we would need like five inputs, Time of day, time of the event, date and time, dietary restriction, type of cuisine, things of that nature. And then the AI and the technology, the algorithm can really just build you a menu on the fly. Here's the restaurant, here's the entree, here's the side. You may not like what the system chose, but you can swap it out. And so building a menu was just one thing, whether it was dish cards that you don't have to write with your hand and you could just hit print and it prints it for you from the system. And so there were so many things on the catering side that we knew we could automate. On the supply side, we knew it was a win-win. Giving an opportunity to restaurants and caterers to just incremental revenue, expose their brand, give them so much more business I can't even begin to tell you in in five years that we've run platters. How many restaurants have called us up and said, do you know how much our business has gone up because of platters? Not just because of the orders that your clients are ordering from us, but they have brought in their husband and their kids on the weekends to eat at my restaurant. Oh, yeah. There's nothing more rewarding to us than that,
0: right? Yeah, because a lot of these places are small businesses.
1: It's a big win-win for us. And so in March of 2015, we hugged it out and we said, like, I think we have a true marketplace to build here. We have a supply side that is a win-win. We have a demand side that will get tremendous benefit from this. And we launched platters of March of 15.
0: Wow. What cities are you in now?
1: So we are currently in over 15 North American cities, all the major hubs, SF, LA, Chicago, New York, Mm. Toronto, Montreal, Kitchener, Waterloo. We've recently expanded to Europe with some of our clients as well. Using platters from a food side, there's three use cases. You're either going to use us for meetings. You're either going to use us for a food program, whether it's a daily or biweekly or once a month meal, breakfast or lunch, or the third case, the third use case would be an event, um, a lot of people use us for their events, whether it's the Thanksgiving, the Halloween, Christmas, it could be the once a month town hall. Those are really the three use cases for food that most people would engage with the platform. But we are obviously expanding beyond food and, and taking the platform much more beyond food.
0: What I really loved that caught my eye was the name that because it, it's platters with a Z or Z.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's very memorable.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what was the significance of that? Because I'm sure there's got to be some sort of marketing science behind having a, a Z in a company name.
1: Yeah, look, I think for us, first of all, the, the name platters, we actually translated it from a Hebrew word. Me and my co-founder oh. both having backgrounds from Israel. It's a word in Hebrew that really is like a plate of food, right? And it translated, obviously, to platters as well. And then we didn't really like it with the S. We said the Z gives it a little bit of zingy mm-hmm. and zestiness to us. And so we went with the platters. We were happy it was available. And I think it's, it's caught on quite well in the last five years, the name.
0: And when did you start becoming an investor outside of your own businesses? I would say that
1: really after Jump Tap and you know, after 2013, when, when we had sold the company and I took a year mm-hmm. off, I tried to really understand could I add any value? I mean, I wasn't, you know, an investor like a VC and writing, you know, huge checks, but I knew that I could maybe help some of these smaller companies just through my connections and my network. So whether it was with mobile operators or I had a great relationship with Twitter and Facebook at the time, you know, can I help companies there with their product? I really didn't feel a need to help in making an angel investment if I couldn't add value from Mm -hmm. connections. I could advise you, I could lecture, you know, give stuff like that. But, you know, I'm sure there's enough people that can help give advice I thought for me, the only real value add I could bring is is through my relationships. Can I make an intro for you that might normally take you six, nine months to get a meeting? Can I do that for you in two, three weeks
0: meeting? Hmm. How do you feel at the moment with the stock market?
1: It's scary times, right? There's definitely... For those who definitely lived through 2000, 2001, and then I had to live through 2008 a Jump Tap, where we, we had to make some changes in the business, it was probably mo- one of my most difficult times. Telling people that, you know, you need to part ways in 2008 was very difficult. For some reason, I'm all, you know, the entrepreneur me, I'm an optimist. I, me I, too. You know, I'm an optimist. I don't think we're in a 2008 scenario. It's not Lehman Brothers and Citibank that everyone's running out of capital. It is scary from a health perspective, but I'm an optimist. I believe vaccination, something will be brought to the table soon. I believe that we can contain this. I think we can control it and ultimately just get back to a thriving economy like we've been all enjoying.
0: So being you know so immersed in that industry, what would you say has been the best investment you've made? Interesting.
1: Without mentioning maybe a specific company, I would just say that the best investments I've always made was when I bet on the individuals that Mm. had a nice blend or a mix of complementary skill set. It's something I talked about earlier. I've never had success where the founders of that company were all AI, PhD, computer science only. I felt like in companies where somebody had some, either the sales, the business aspect, somebody had the technical and somebody maybe had the growth marketing side. That's where I've had the best success for me personally, but I've probably had more failures and things that I haven't had success just because I also didn't bet on the team and I should have. Case in point, one of my biggest failures is Waze. You're probably familiar with Waze.
0: Yes.
1: I don't know if you use that. And those are dear dear friends of mine. And, you know, we worked together in Israel and and I had an opportunity very early on. But that was a big miss on my part because I didn't see when they started out that that was going to be, you know, they were going to be a social network, you know, around traffic. And you could tell people where there's an accident ahead or a police radar up ahead. Mm-hmm. But they pivoted over time to routes. And, and that was what really took off, finding your fastest route from downtown Toronto to Montreal. And so oh, I it, use it all the time. And in hindsight, I probably should have met a bet on, I should have bet on the team and not the product at the
0: time. Hmm. Who were the people that started it? There's several entrepreneurs.
1: Noam Berdani is still at Google today, and there was Uri Levine, you know, several guys from Israel that started it, and they went off, I think, selling it to Google for $1.2 billion.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. Good for them. That was if, a big one. So if somebody was starting and they were, you know, what would you say is the best place for, say, a millennial to invest their money right now?
1: Oh, for the millennials? Look, I think... Somebody I think
0: young who's who, you know yeah. wants to start investing
1: yeah I think look it's it's it depends on how much wealth you have and what's your mm-hmm. risk you know your risk tolerance is right there's a part of me even if it's my kids I always tell them start with real estate first mm-hmm. after you've got a little bit of real estate then dabble into tech interesting
0: um, what type of real estate do you recommend to them
1: well, I always say something that you want to be long-term play. you know, even if it's something that you just buy on paper, if it's a condo and it's going to be ready in four or five years, I don't think you can go wrong. Toronto is what? Still the fourth largest North American city. We're nowhere near the prices of Manhattan or LA for a one-bedroom condo. And hmm. so as, as much as the city everybody thinks is so overpriced, I still think it's underpriced. <laughs>
0: huh. Interesting.
1: I would say start with that if you're a millennial, but obviously if you want to tackle tech then I think it's something that you can't just write a check and watch from the sidelines. I think if you're a millennial today, you've got to be part of the risk. You need to come into a company and say, I love what you're doing. I've researched it. I'm willing to go all in. You know what? Don't even pay me a salary for six months. Let me show you what I can do. Hmm. I believe so much. Let me show you what I can do. If you want, I can put in some money. That's how much I believe in you. That's the right approach. Don't come in and say, oh, I got this degree from Western or McGill. I deserve this job. No, mm-hmm. come and improve yourself. And then I assure you, the rest will take care of itself. If you're good and somebody sees that you're hustling and you're a contributor to the company, why would they let you go?
0: Oh, exactly. You're going to hold on to that person it, at all costs. You've proven your mindset, yourself.
1: Your mindset, I think, is wrong. If, if millennials come in and say, I deserve, I need, I want.
0: Oh, it drives me crazy. I'm a millennial, but the way, you know, I'm older, I'm, I'll be 35 this year. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when I was young, we were taught the polar opposite of what I see in people's work ethics. Even, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I had an interview with a woman the one day, and I asked for her references and she said, oh, no, my processes. I only provide those when I know I'm being hired.
1: It's just, yeah, it's, it's... You know, like your
0: your process? <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> it just and, and kind of reflects the entire mentality that they have of like what you can do for them.
1: We're in the business of really empowering the employees and culture and bringing people mm-hmm. together, whether it's food, snacks, and, and additional things that we're going to get into. And it's still mind-blowing to me that I've literally had in interviews, people say to me, uh, so how often am I being fed at platters? <laughs> And I kind of turn back and say, really, is that what you're asking me in the interview? You know, 25 years ago in my first job at Converse, I was happy that somebody gave me a cup of coffee. I never yeah. asked what an espresso machine is in the building. Right <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Things have changed.
1: So I think the things have changed. And I think millennials, again, to answer your question, if you really want to invest in something and be involved in something, then go all in and don't ask for things that are the wrong things to ask for.
0: Mm-hmm. 100%. So after you sold your first company, did you find that your life kind of changed? It didn't. I think... Because you uh, sold it for, I think it was $240 million, right?
1: right? Yeah, that is correct. I would say that I, I'm a son of an immigrant. It's what I, I started the conversation in telling you. I, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with my two brothers and my parents, and I saw what it was like to earn a hard-earned dollar. and. Mm-hmm. It's something that's been ingrained with me ever since. I will never buy a Lamborghini. I won't drive uh, fancy cars. It's just not who I am. I don't think that's changed me. I don't think, you know, whatever the final chapter on platters will be, um, it, it won't. If anything, it'll probably be more for my kids or more to donate to charities that I'm involved with. But my lifestyle doesn't change. And my wife, <laughs> being similar backgrounds, we both came from a very little. And in, in terms of our upbringing, everything that we've done, we've done together. And so we try oh, not to, amazing. We try not to let this blind us or change us who we are. And I'll be honest with you, I think the most difficult role I have today is as a parent, keeping <laughs> my kids in the same mindset, the same mind frame that I was, right? How do you get them into the same mindset? Because nobody took me a Christmas to Mexico, right? Yes. Or nobody bought me an iPad. But in a day and age, that we want to give our kids everything. But where do you draw the line on giving them? And then where do you draw the line in terms of making them understand, like, you got to go earn it. You know, mom and dad just can't give you so you have an easy path to life. I still believe everything that me or my siblings have today is what we went through and that hardship. And so there is that fine balance today as a parent that you struggle with how much to give and how much not to give.
0: Are your siblings similar to you in their paths?
1: They are, different routes and different industries and journeys, but just all their success is what they've made of themselves. I even have a sister that was born in Canada and she's today a very, very big celebrity over in Israel and she did oh, it all on her own. So neat. Um, she's the number one youtuber in Israel and but it's but it just oh my comes goodness,
0: from that is funny
1: yeah it just it comes from our, our upbringing
0: youtubers what yes. a, what a wild profession I have a young woman actually she's coming on the podcast soon she worked for us as a ran ambassador years ago and she won the award last year for the most viewed female on YouTube in North America or the world or something like that Wow uh, yeah but she's got insane followings and yeah it's no, my just- sister, my oh. sister too.
1: She started literally, it was so funny. She started with a, a YouTube in Israel of putting lipstick on. She sent it to my mother on YouTube. She was in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And yeah. next thing she know, had over two hundred thousand followers.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And today she's a big brand with her own lines of product. And she's got her own talk show. And but it all started with that one YouTube. So it's, it was pretty funny.
0: What's her name?
1: Ashley Waxman.
0: I'm gonna look her up after this. Yeah. I'll look Have up. You- her have you had any mentors along the way? I
1: have. I can't say, you know, I, I obviously have, I've learned from a lot of people, certainly mm-hmm. through my Converse journey. I was young. I was in my early 20s with an MBA and there were some people there that, you know, really coached and guide me on just business matters and, and how to handle negotiations and stuff like that. A dear mentor to me was in the jump tap era. He came from the VC side. He actually started Excite.com which became one of the first search engines. His name was George Bell. He was an investor and and sat on our board. And he was just one of those guys that just, you know, lived through it all, the dot-com and built, you know, one of the first search engines and very well known. And he was a a terrific mentor for me in just all the way along towards business. And so that's probably the one I I will mention the most.
0: Hmm. I saw a photo actually that your team had shared for Women's Day, I believe it was. And you guys have a pretty big team there.
1: Yeah. The company today is around uh, 160 people and we're going to grow to uh, over 250. We're in the midst of our closing our B round. And so we're going to scale quite quickly here as well in the next year with obviously we have a team in Israel with R&D and product. We have a team all over the US and then we've got a team in Toronto and we're just going to continue to scale that.
0: Hmm. How do you stay so grounded and calm with everything going on?
1: Again, the optimist in me, the entrepreneur in me—you <laughs> um, just—it's the old, you know, Forrest Gump saying, "Life is like a box of chocolates," right? And mm-hmm. there are things you can control, and there are things you cannot control. Worry about the things that you can control. Don't worry about the things that you can't control. I'm a firm believer, and and I preach this to my team all the time that I think that you can plan as much as you want. I planned to be Jerry Maguire, and I wasn't Jerry Maguire. Hmm you got to just kind of follow the path, follow the path, see where things take you. I'm not saying not have a plan. It's always good to have a plan, whether you want to go be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it is. But there are times in life where you don't have to plan. Just go through it and go through the journey. See where it takes you. Try different things. And so it's the same mentality I try to bring to our staff is just what we can control. Let's control. We can't control. We can't control. And let's just follow the path. Let's see where this thing goes. Even today, in times of corona where you probably heard you know some of our clients have told their employees to work from home and all of a sudden you know there's no food for those employees but we actually have a solution for them so a lot of them are using our treat product. It's a, a visa card that is uploaded with the CFO or the VP of the department to whatever dollar amount you want with rules and policies and procedures that you want to set. So for example, even if they are sitting at home for the next two weeks or month, they can still use this treat card to order food for themselves.
0: Oh, I love that idea. That's wonderful. That's clever.
1: So being a tech company, being software driven, we're all about obviously working with our clients. You know, we're all in this together trying to get out of this Corona situation. But at the end of the day, our employees are key and we can't just either send them home and just say, you know, sit in front of the, the computer at home all day and we're not thinking about you. So every employer is constantly thinking about their employees and what could we do to just make them feel okay while they're at home through this period.
0: I love that. Was that something you already had in place or did you just develop that?
1: We actually had a pilot already in place with some clients that wanted to test it out as kind of the dine-out solution. Mm -hmm. Because most of the people, whether clients are its dine-in, whether it's a group order for 10 or 15 people, whether it's a lunch for 100 people, or whether it's for events, it's mostly a dine-in solution. But there are certain cases where they want to give them one day a week dine out. Here's a $15 stipend, go do whatever you want. And just the whole invoice process of that, set up your expense report, give, give it into your boss, get reimbursed. We just figured why not just give them a treat card. And then you can really just put the rules and procedures the way you want it. So for example, you can say we'll work at Starbucks from 845 to 9am, but it won't work at 905.
0: <laughs> mm, yes, that's awesome.
1: Dinner love- will only work after 8 PM. And so we piloted that. We got tremendous feedback from the market. And now obviously with Corona, it's just something that we were able to, to give our existing clients.
0: So, that's a good example of pivoting when needed. Exactly. So now where can people find more information about you and about all the stuff you're doing?
1: But probably the best thing for me is obviously on LinkedIn. I'm not big on Twitter. I'm not huge on social media. But LinkedIn is obviously where I, I do a lot of my recruiting from there, my poaching. Uh, people reach out to me. And so, you know, LinkedIn is the best mechanism. And then obviously, platters with a Z, .ca or .co is where they can see everything on platters and and some of the things that we're going to be rolling out also in the next few months beyond just food. That's probably the best.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was fantastic.
1: Emily, thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it.